Amen. Buona sfiwe. Thank you. As in praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I got more from Buona Sfiwa than I did from Praise the Lord. How did that happen? Um, same thing, by the way. Um, it's good to be with you again. Um, we, we've been with you, but we've been having some guests, which has been wonderful. In Swahili, we say, Wageni ni baraka. Guests are a blessing. And we've been blessed with a number of, of guest speakers. So I have had the privilege of hearing them. And uh, now I get the privilege of sharing the word with you again. So uh, let's pray as we go to your wor God's word. Lord, we, um, we're here. We are here to hear from you. And we want to submit ourselves to your word. We confess that we don't know everything. We confess that you do know everything. And we confess that you have shown us what you want us to know in your word. And you continue to reveal yourself through your word and through your spirit to us today in our situations. Even though you wrote it to people through people long ago, it speaks to us today. We want to be spoken to today. And Lord, we want to say that we are going to obey you. Even before we open your word, we want to come to you saying we want to obey you. We want to live your way. We want to see you. We want to know you. We want to touch you. And so we ask you to meet us now as we open your word, break your word together, as we break bread together later. Lord, we want to meet you, know you, see you. Be with us. Welcome. Amen. So it's good to be with you. And uh, um, I'm going to take us back to Exodus. All of you forgot that we were on a journey through, through Exodus on our way to uh, Mount Sinai. We uh, have, been, have been taking a journey through Genesis and Exodus, and we've had um, some fun um, diversions and, and uh, off into some other territory with some, with some other uh, speakers. We had a great um, time also from some of the assistant pastors talking about connecting the disconnected and um, some good things God's been doing among us. But uh, I wanted to take us back to Exodus, and I had promised to let Pastor Andrew preach on the first part of Exodus 18, So, uh, but then he, he didn't take his chance, and he preached on something else, connecting the disconnected. So I get to preach on it. Um, so there is a Bible in front of you, in the, in the pew in front of you, Exodus 18. Genesis is the first book. Exodus is the next one. And so Exodus 18 we are there at the beginning of Exodus, and we're in our year of increasing trust, and uh, we're finding different ways that God is challenging us to increase our trust. Um, so let's look at uh, Exodus 18. A stranger becomes family. We, that's a, something we say around here. We say... Uh, Bethel Christian Fellowship is a house of prayer for all nations, a safe place, a welcoming place where strangers become friends and friends become family. Um, so I want us to explore that a little more today. 
Um, so Moses, Exodus 18.1, we, we find Jethro. And we find Jethro... Um, Let's, let's read Exodus 18. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything God had done for Moses and his people, the Israelites. He heard especially about how the Lord had rescued them from Egypt. Now, that word rescued is going to be mentioned a number of times here. Um, in other translations, it says saved or delivered or rescued. He rescued them from, remember their situation in Egypt? They were oppressed, they were in bondage, they were um, having their kids killed, they were in, in a terrible strait that God rescued them out of by his outstretched hand. So, so then they had been through the uh, desert and had to find food and water, and God provided various things, battle just before this. Remember, the, right before this, the Amalekites had come and, and attacked them, and, and God had defeated them. God's protection was around them as, as, they, uh, as Moses lifted up his hands. So, back to verse 2. Earlier, Moses had sent his wife Zipporah and his two sons back to Jethro, who had taken them in. Moses' first son was named Gershom, for Moses had said when the boy was born, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. His second son was named Eliezer, for Moses had said, the God of my ancestors was my helper. He rescued me from the sword of Pharaoh. And sorry, I'm reading New Living Translation. Some of you have NIV if you pull it out of the front there. Don't be confused. Um, it, neither of it, it's the Hebrew, but we're thankful for different translations, right? So we don't have to read the Hebrew. Um, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, now came to visit Moses in the wilderness. He brought Moses' wife and two sons with him, and they arrived while Moses and the people of God were camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent a, Mo a message to Moses saying, I, Jethro, your father-in-law, am coming to see you with your wife and your two sons. So we have a family reunion going on here. Family reunification happening. But to get, I think we might need to recall and remember a little bit what's been happening here. So let's re recall that Moses was rescued from being killed by a, a hand of God to... Uh, bring him up in Pharaoh's palace. Then he got to a place where he got upset about the oppression of the Israelites, and he killed a cruel taskmaster. And then Pharaoh found out about it. He realized his life was in danger, and he took off, ran away out of Egypt, across the Sinai to the Midianites. And he met some, somebody, some, a young woman. Well, I don't know how young she was, but she was having trouble with her sheep because... Some of these men were oppressing her, and he rescued her. And then we get to, so let's flip back quickly to Exodus um, 2, verse 17. But some other shepherds came and chased them away, so Moses jumped up and rescued the girls from the shepherds. Then he drew water for their flocks. When the girls returned to Ruel, that is Jethro, he's, he's got a different name here, their father, he asked, why are you back so soon? An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, they answered, and then he drew water for us and watered our flocks. Then where is he? Their father asked, why did you leave him there? Invite him to come and eat with us. Moses accepted the invitation and he settled there with him. In time, Reuel gave Moses his daughter Zipporah to be his wife. 
Later she gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, for he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. Years past, the king of Egypt died. So Moses spends 40 years with his father's flock. Um, and uh, this is a kind of a tough time for Moses. Tough time because he was a prince of Egypt, right? He, had, he was a prince of Egypt, and now he was a refugee running away from, uh, well, death. And he ended up crossing into this barren place and Fortunately, somebody took him in and gave him a meal and even let him stay with him and gave him a job as a shepherd. Uh, I was talking to Anna as we were, uh, as we were, were going to a conference today, and she, say, she said one of the things she tells people who come to this country, refugees and other people, is you have to humble yourself. She said, I was a treasurer in the government, an accountant there, and I had a driver, I had a cook, I, had a, I came here, and I have to humble myself because people are always saying, well, I'm surprised you know that. Why are you surprised I know that? Um, because I have an accent, um, different from your accent. So there, he had to humble himself and become a shepherd, and something happened. But I also want you to put yourself in the place of Jethro. So here is a stranger, a foreigner, um, and he didn't know at this point, but he's a murderer. He's a murderer running away from the law, and he shows up, and Jethro says, hey, why didn't you invite him in to eat with us? And the, the daughter's like, uh, I didn't know if I was supposed to do that, I guess. But notice Jethro's hospitality here, that he welcomes the stranger, person he doesn't know. In fact, he has a much shadier background than Jethro knows. Um, he welcomes this murderer into his house, this foreigner, and then eventually he gives him his daughter. Wow, that's hospitality. Um, really. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what strangers are going to end up with my daughters or my sons, but I'm, you know, praying about that. So uh, what, uh, what hospitality Jethro shows? And what happens because Jethro shows this hospitality? Because Jethro is hospital, like Abram was hospital. And, and actually, what we don't catch here is that actually, if you go way back, Jethro is the descendant of Abraham through that other wife, Keturah, you know, the one we never talk about, um, who we married after Sarah died. Um, and there's Hagar, we know about her, but Keturah, so, so, there, so this is actually a stranger, but it's a family reunion. They would never know that. Have you ever run into like a second, third cousin that you didn't know? And then halfway through, you find out, oh, this is a, this is a cousin of mine. Um, you probably ran into them and didn't know they were a cousin of yours, actually. In fact, what Genesis tells us is that we're all cousins, right? We don't all go back to Abraham. Anybody here have a heritage back to Abraham? Any, any Jewish or Midianite people? Okay, we got one. And thank you for welcoming us. Oh, two. Great. Um, thank you for welcoming us into the family, by the way, because um, the rest of us are strangers, real strangers. Um, so what comes out of that welcoming is that this stranger becomes a friend and an employee, and then he becomes part of the family, right? Now, to be honest, whenever we say this is a place where strangers become friends and friends become family, I always get a little 
nervous. Like, are we overpromising? Because uh, that's a big stretch. Because we're really different from each other, and um, I don't know if we're gonna if we could actually be family. Um, but then I read an article uh, in the last couple of weeks, and it talks about families are all dysfunctional, and we all have things that are messed up. And and I thought, okay, so we're not promising people necessarily they're coming into the perfect family, because you all came from dysfunctional families. So you're bringing whatever dysfunction you brought from your family. And so if you find that this place is kind of a dysfunctional family, hey, it's because of you and me. We, we brought that with us. The one thing that we have that's an advantage is we have a much better father. We have a father who always loves us, always does the right thing, always guides us. And so that is the one thing that gives us some hope and some reason to be part of this family. But don't expect us to be perfect. In fact, you know what? Being part of a family, I was trying to think, well, what, what does it mean that you're part of a family? Well, it actually, it just means you raise your expectations. So like I go into town and I have a brother or sister there, I expect them to put me up and feed me meals and, you know, keep me for a week. I don't expect anybody else to do that. And if they don't, I'm upset. You know, if I have a friend, I might hope they would, but I don't expect them to. And if I have a stranger, I certainly don't expect. So we, we just kind of raise our expectation, which also my favorite equation, reality minus expectation equals happiness. R minus E equals H. So when you raise your expectation, you're sure to be unhappy. So as soon as you raise expectation that we're a family, you're, you're going to be disappointed. And accept, just remember, we're a dysfunctional family. And you brought that with you just like I did. But you can raise all the expectation you want of our father because our father will never disappoint you. And um, so that's the good part of being a part of this family because we have a father who shows his love to us. And he showed his love to us when we were strangers, the way that Jethro showed love to Moses. Um, so what comes out of that? is that now after 40-plus years, Moses spent 40 years at Jethro's house working for him and, and being part of his family, there's this family reunion that happens. So it's, actually, it's a family reunion because Abram gets to see his, his uh, child and his wife. We were talking about Mike the last time I preached, and he's still hoping, Pastor Mike is still hoping to uh, get to see his wife and his kids and have his asylum case Settled after six years, and some of the rest of you have had that kind of situation where you were divided for, it's tough, isn't it? My wife's been gone five out of seven days this week. That's tough. Um, and that's not years. That's not seven years, five years. Um, so I, how, however long they've been gone, they were gone because it got too dangerous for Zipporah to be in Egypt with Abram. It got too dangerous. She had to be put someplace, and his sons had to be put someplace that was safer. Now they get back together. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. This is verse 7 now, 18.7. We're back to, back to the 18. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. They asked about each other's welfare and then went into Moses' tent. Now that asked about each other's welfare is actually the word shalom. They asked about peace. They greeted one another. It's three times in Exodus. One was when Jethro welcomed him. The next one is here, and the next one is in the same chapter where he says, if you appoint other judges, you will have shalom. Everyone will have shalom. You will have shalom, and other people will have shalom. So they welcomed each other. Notice this, this is customary greeting, but 
Moses is the big shot, but he's bowing low to his father-in-law. He's returning that kind of hospitality to his father-in-law that his father-in-law showed him. Moses told his father-in-law everything Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and Egypt on behalf of Israel. Everything the Lord. Remember when it's all capitals, it means Yahweh, the name of the Lord. He also told about all the hardships they had experienced along the way and how Yahweh had rescued his people from all their troubles. Jethro was delighted, overjoyed when he heard about all the good things Yahweh had done for Israel as he rescued them from the hand of the Egyptians. So I want you to notice what's happening here. That interesting, this is kind of the same place you recall that Moses fled and came to, to uh, Jethro's house, and then he was out washing Jethro's sheep someplace near this mountain of Sinai that we're about to find out about. And at this mountain, the burning bush happened. Moses got his call and went back and asked his father-in-law if he could leave and go take care of some business in Egypt. Here they're back in the same place, same situation, well, a very different situation. Now Moses is hosting him, and Moses gets to tell him all the stuff that Yahweh has done. Now, it seems like Jethro was, well, we're not clear, but he seemed to be a worshiper of God, the creator, Elohim is the, is the Hebrew word, but he didn't know Yahweh by name, and, and he didn't really understand who Yahweh was who the God of Israel. Of course, Moses didn't understand until it was revealed to him at this bush, right? But now he's understanding who Yahweh is, and his response is delight. So I want you to notice this huge group of refugees have been chased out of their country, and they're in no man's land. They're on their way to some promised land. They're hoping to end up someplace, but they're just on their way. The Amalekites right before this, have one response. They say, uh-oh, threat. These foreigners have come. we got to squash them. And so they attack them and try to keep them out of their land. And God had a purpose, and he dealt with the Amalekites, and the Amalekites were destroyed. Um, Jethro has a different response. He has that hospitable response that he had before. He says, hey, family's back. He says, the strangers, oh, with a whole lot of strangers, his, his family and a whole lot of strangers have moved into his territory. So in this chapter, we see Jethro welcoming the stranger, trust God's for his rescue, and then blessed Israel with good advice. Um, that's the second half of the chapter, which we talked about last time. So the real heart of this is this next verse. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord, Jethro said, for he has rescued you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Yes, he has rescued you from the powerful hand of Egypt. In the NIV, it says hand twice there. The, the hand of Egypt and the hand of Pharaoh. Do you remember? Well, let's, let's finish it here. I now, I know now that Yahweh is greater than all other gods because he rescued his people from the oppression of the proud Egyptians. Now, if you're looking in your NIV, it doesn't say Egyptians. It says those who treated them arrogantly. It's not clear if we're talking about the gods of Egypt or if we're talking about the Egyptians who were against them. But the, 
the idea is that they're all actually all together. Pharaoh was one of the gods. Pharaoh was with the gods, oppressing them along with the Egyptians. And God has rescued Yahweh, this one God, has rescued from all of the powerful gods of the most powerful nation of the time. And Jethro is impressed. Wow, what kind of God rescues the poor and oppressed from their situation and has the power to do that and the compassion to care about those people? This is amazing. And as a result of it, Jethro decides to follow Yahweh. He decides Yahweh is the one, the God. Maybe I've trying to been figuring out what's going on with, you know, what he was doing exactly, how he understood, but now he's got a revelation, what kind of conversion exactly it is, but it's a real conversion to following Yahweh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Aaron and all the elders of Israel came out and joined him in a sacrificial meal in God's presence. Now we're going to have a sacrificial meal in God's presence here in a little bit. That's kind of a family reunion. This is kind of a family reunion where Moses is the mediator between Aaron and the elders of Israel, get back together with Keturah's kids, and they, and they find this stranger has become family, and not just family, but family connected with the father. We're not talking about Yahweh as father at this point yet, but um, they're reconnected to God, the God of Abraham. And this is a powerful thing. It's a powerful opportunity that came out of what? Welcoming a stranger. That ended up in a powerful family reunion and knowing Yahweh in a new way for all of them. And it came out of some uncomfortable shifting around. Right? Anybody had any uncomfortable movement? Had to move someplace uncomfortable? Had some tough stuff with that? Yeah. But God moves us around sometimes for our good, what we discover, and also for sometimes for the people who welcome us and are hospitable to us. Um, we went to a, a seminar this last, uh, some of us, I had, I had mentioned the seminar, but most of you were busy with day camps. Hallelujah. You did a great job with that. And uh, so a few of us, a number of us, went to this seminar. And I, I'm going to show you a few of the slides from the seminar I got the the PowerPoint from that. So this is Matthew Soren's World Relief and Evangelical Immigration Table. We're just sharing some stuff. You now, World Relief is connected to Arrive Ministries. World Relief is part of the National Association of Evangelicals, and Arrive is part of Transform Minnesota, which is the basically those are the Minnesota versions of those national evangelical organizations, which we're part of, which we support, and um, they give us some some good information often. And I thought this was really helpful because there's so much information out there, but I don't know which information to believe. I thought this was a, a good, credible source and not just a soundbite here and there and arguments on Facebook and whatever. So, um, so I thought I'd share a little bit of this. Um, some troubling statistics. 86% of Protestant pastors in the U.S., according to LifeWay Research, affirm that Christians should care sacrificially for refugees and foreigners. That's all over the Bible. So uh, that's not too surprising. Um, But 8% say their church is currently involved in serving refugees locally. So 8%, 86% think they should do something. 8% are doing something locally. Now, some of that's because some people don't have any opportunity. 
there wasn't that much opportunity in Cloquet when I was growing up um, to do this kind of thing. Now, we had plenty of opportunity to, work to uh, relate to the Native Americans that we lived with. And there was always opportunities for things, but only 19% they're saying they're doing something internationally. Now, this church is obviously totally different than that. And that's, this is something we've been doing for a long time, and it's something we've been doing this month. So 55 people were able to go to camp because of your supporting it. And it was all kinds of kids that went to camp. And some of them were immigrants and refugees. And, and uh, we had a great African leaders conference. These top leaders from Congo and, and other places were here, and we were able to teach and, and welcome them. And I got to eat a whole bunch of African meals and was welcomed into uh, a bunch of places. And actually just yesterday, Chris and Anna Williams had me over for um, a good African meal. Um, it's fun for me to be the only white person in some rooms, you know, because I'm used to that. So, uh, especially with Africans. So, uh, so there, there were 66 workers. 60. Now, if you were working at day camp, first of all, let me see the kids who were at day camps. Kids who were at day camp, stand up. Say, woohoo. All right. Now, let me see some of the 66 workers who worked with the kids at day camp. Yeah. Woohoo. Now, now, I want you to hear it. Cheer for these folks. Annette, thank you so much for leading us in that. And uh, some of them are gone because they went up to a mission trip in uh, Cloquet, up with up those strangers up there. Um, so the uh, Native Americans and other people like me, and, and Rich, he was up there too. Um, so some of them are off on more stuff. So I think our church is amazing. And it's, what, this is not just about us serving our kids. So I, I put these stats up here. 26 children were from BCF. 32 children were from the community. And 40 ch 41 children were from the All Nations Family of Churches. So that's four from Cross-Culture Community Church, five from ICF, and 27 from KCF, Korean Christian Fellowship. So these are, by the way, for those of you who don't know the All Nations Family of Churches, there's eight churches that we are part of. Five of them meet in this building, three others elsewhere. And so we are... In process, we're doing the welcoming the stranger, becoming friends, and becoming family. We're not a perfect family. We're not doing it perfectly, but we're doing a lot better than most people. So give yourselves a hand. And give God a hand, because we've been at this for, yeah, thank you. It was 25 plus years ago that uh, Jim was talking about we're going to be a mosaic church, and the elders were saying that we're not going to move that way, and and I was saying, but our census track is 95% white, and I, will this even work? And God's done it, right? It wasn't any big strategic plan. We didn't know how it would happen, but God has done it and is doing it. Um, so praise God for that. I, that's why I'm excited to be part of this church. So 57% of evangelical Christians, 69% of white evangelicals say their arrival of immigrants to their community represents a threat or a burden of some sort. Hmm. So that's a little more like the Amalekites, right? Uh, ooh, who are these people? What, uh, what's their background? Well, maybe there's a murderer um, like Moses. Uh, so I'm in trouble with this. Um, only 42% say it presents an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus. Now, when you're filling out a survey, you know, Usually we'd even lie a little bit on a survey like this, like, well, oh yeah, I introduced, I hadn't thought of that, but sure. Um, but only 42% mentioned that. Um, is this not work? I don't know what's going on with this, so I just got to pretend I'm doing it, right? 
Now, just 12% of evangelical Christians say their views on the arrival of refugees and other immigrants are primarily informed by the Bible. Again, if you're an evangelical filling this out, you know, what's brown and bushy and has a, you know, a squirrel, you know, no, 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 it must be Jesus, right? Um, you'd think we would check biblical, or maybe we're just honest. And we said, only 12% of us said biblically is the main thing that informs our so what else informs us? Ooh, media, um, politicians, arguments, um, things that um, we don't know whether we can trust. But the Bible is something we can trust. So um, Jesus himself was a refugee. It says, out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus was doing, remember Jesus got up in the middle of the night and had to run away from a wicked king? A, pretty much a refugee. Um, there. There's Ruth was a refugee. Um, we have, this whole people of Israel is a refugee army on the on the run at this point. Um, this Joseph was a refugee. All of that happened because um, so a refugee. What's a refugee according to legal definition? In the a refugee is a person who has fled their country because of a well-founded fear of persecution on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. Not everybody's a refugee. You, that's a narrow definition. Including globally, 25.4 million people meet this definition. Not including more than 40 million people who are internally displaced. In other words, they can't live at home. They're living someplace in the same country, but in a refugee camp, or, or they have run away from a situation that's part, happening in part of the country. So that is a record number. Never in the world has there been that many refugees. This is, and remember, strict definition, but 25 million people are like the Israelites in the middle of nowhere. Not, they've fled their country because of the situation, and they're, in, they're now in trouble. Um, so thinking biblically, refugees and other immigrants are made in the image of God and possess inherent dignity and potential. One of the things we have to be careful is the words we use. Because we sometimes use labels for people that make them not sound like people. And uh, I don't even want to say the labels, but, um, or maybe I, maybe I should. What are some of the labels we use for immigrants and refugees that make them sound like not real people? Illegals. Aliens. I have my alien card from Kenya, yep. Um, so, some of those things are, are and, I mean, there's been times I haven't stopped at an intersection when somebody was trying to cross. I'm an illegal. Sometimes they even speed. But nobody labels me an illegal because they break the law. And the, what we'll find out, the dif difficulty with that is I can pay a fine and be not illegal anymore. I don't have to, like, leave the country for at least 10 years and hope I can get back in and leave my kids and whatever. So um, anyway, we, we kind of dehumanize, but, but we have to remember that refugees aren't just mouths. They're also hands and feet and minds. And Moses was not just a murderer running away. He turned out to be somebody God had a call on, a, a, a purpose for. And so, and I want you, if you are any place, to know that God is part of your situation. Whatever you were running from or to, to get to where you are now, or maybe you just moved voluntarily. It's God had a purpose for that. 
he's got something going on for you. Um, and so just a little, we get worried about the economics of it. 40% of Fortune 500 companies were founded or co-founded by an immigrant or their child. I'm kind of glad the guy who founded Google came to the U.S. and founded Google here instead of someplace else. Makes us a lot of money and a lot of jobs. Um, when Apple and uh, General Electric and a whole bunch of other things. So for, that's the top 500 companies. So, you know, you hear that immigrants start businesses more quickly than others. But I usually think that's like, oh, yeah, well, uh, you know, a Mexican restaurant or something. No, this is our... Lots of stuff. Um, contrary to widespread misconception, immigrants who are unlawfully present cannot receive federal means-tested public benefits, but they can and do pay taxes, including $70 million in the U.S., in, in Minnesota alone, and $8, $12 billion in Social Security, which they can never collect. Why don't they make Social Security cards harder to, you know, it's like construction paper with something photocopied on it, right? Part of that's because the Social Security is happy to collect taxes. You go to collect, try to get some benefits, they, they, well, then they'll check it out. But um, isn't that interesting? And they guarantee not to tell the Department of Homeland Security about you when you're paying your Social Security tax. No, go ahead, just pay, no problem. You can, you can do that. We'll even give you a temporary identification number even if you don't have a Social Security number so you can pay your taxes. Um, so uh, anyway, um, I found that very interesting. I was thinking biblically, God loves and cares for the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. And often, those are the same category when it comes to refugees. Foreigners, they're often widowed and orphaned in, in war zones that they're coming from and so forth. Um, so, um, I didn't go on with statistics with that. So I, I trimmed this for you. This is quoted from him, but God commands the Israelites to remember their own history of mistreatment as foreigners. We have a history. All of us are immigrants. Any Native Americans in our congregation? Even part Native Americans? Okay, so we all have a history, and we forget about the tough parts and the mistreatment and how we were treated as not really Americans when we came um, and how our ancestors didn't really know English and that kind of stuff. But the Israelites re remember... God says, remember that I did this for you. I rescued you out of that because that's who I am. Yahweh is that kind of God. So it's important that we are that kind of people because that's the kind of person our father is. Jethro is like, what kind of daughter are you? Welcome him home. That's what our father says. You should be welcoming foreigners and strangers because that's who I am. Those are the people I care about. Um, we're commanded to love our neighbors without caveats. It doesn't say love your neighbors who are nice, love your neighbors who have never done anything, never love your neighbors who look like you. Um, it says, so refugees admitted to the U.S. Um, refugee admissions art program already are subject to the most thorough vetting of any category of visitor or immigrant to the U.S. Most of them spend 17 years before they ever get to be here. And of all the immigrants there are, a half a percent get to be permanently placed someplace else. So you see a few people here from Congo. There are all kinds of people from Congo in Tanzania, Uganda, other places. I've, I've visited camps of hundreds of thousands. A few of them managed to go through all that process to get here. Um, since the Refugee Act of 1980, zero Americans have lost their life in a terrorist attack perpetrated by a refugee. How many, how many is that? What kind of percentage is that? What are the chances? that you would lose your life in a refugee attack. 
Um, immigrants are incarcerated at lower rates than U.S. citizens, 1.53% among native-born, 0.47 lawfully present immigrants. By the way, a refugee is always lawfully present. That's how they got here. 0.85 among unlawfully present immigrants, including the fact that they're not lawful because, so they get thrown in jail or convicted of crimes because they're illegal. Um, so, they have, so they get charged for those kind of violations. While the unlawfully present population tripled from 1990 to 2013, criminal rates fell by 48% nationally. So um, we're commanded to be subject to governing authorities. The Bible also teaches that, as we've been reminded. So let's just say immigration in the U.S. is complicated, all right? So on the one hand, some people say this is all there is to it. Just obey the law. On the other hand, some people say it's just a matter of social justice. Just welcome everybody. It's not that simple. The law is not that simple. And the first thing we need to say is it's complicated. And it's not going to be dealt with in a soundbite. It's not going to be dealt with in a, um, you know, so we need to spend some time actually understanding what's going on so that we can respond in a, in a good way. And we need to have real discussions between us and across the aisle. I, I mean, I know the real strangers are the people from that other political party, right? Um, those are the ones we have a real hard time getting along with these days. We need to have some discussions, some open discussions, and, and not just on Facebook, you know, or looking at it and go, oh, that person. You know, let's have a discussion about what, what do we really need to do and how do we do it? Um, because, so 70% of immigrants in the U.S. are lawfully present, including all who are admitted as refugees. Every refugee is lawfully here. That's part of the definition. Among the roughly 11 million immigrants who are unlawfully present in the U.S., nearly half entered on a temporary visa but overstayed. And they come from all over the world, not just from Mexico. Under current law, legal immigration is limited to family-sponsored immigrants. So somebody wants their wife to join them, their husband to join them. Employer-sponsored immigrants. We really need this person for this job, and we can prove that there's nobody else in the U.S. who could do this job, so we have to have this person. Um, refugees and asylees who are uh, persecuted, diversity visa lottery winners, which is a very small thing. What that means is, if you, for example, he told the, the person doing this, told it about a friend of his who came here, got a job as a young person, um, got saved, got married, and, and now he has tried everything he can. He's realized he should obey the law. He's tried everything he can to obey the law. He's paid lawyers for things that it, it is impossible for him to obey the law. The only way he can do it is to leave his kids, his teenagers who have only know English, have only grown up here, who would probably say, well, I'm not going back to Mexico. I'm staying here. Leave his teenagers, go there, and hope in 10 years he can come back and try to support his family from a distance in Mexico. So there's also the scripture about provide for your family or you're worse than an infidel. So people are caught between. So how do we deal with that? It's not simple, is it? Um, when we extend compassion to persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ, we do so to Christ himself. See, this is, the, this is what's... Let's, let's look at Matthew 25. And it's on your front, front cover of your bulletin as well. Um, so this is... This is one of those posts on Facebook that um, 
I hope you haven't seen, but I have from people that I, even, even family members, says heaven has a big wall and a gate and uh, strict immigration policy and hell is open to everybody, so think about it. Um, Im implying that the U.S. is heaven and uh, that we, we should have a strict immigration policy and a big wall and a big gate. Matthew 25 tells us what the immigration policy is. What is the test, the, me the test that God gives to see if we're going to get into heaven? And see, we assume that we're already in, which uh, that's not necessarily guaranteed. Matthew 25. Um, okay. Verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence. He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand with the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger. And you invited me into your home, just like Jethro and Abraham and um, Boaz. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and, and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and, and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Now, there's debate about whether my brothers and sisters implies only Christians or others who are not Christians. Probably in Matthew, since he uses brothers and sisters, it's talking about Christians here. So the implication is you're treating fellow Christians in a... Um, in a so in other words, people get off on this and like, well, does that get rid of the gospel of grace then? We're not saved by grace. We're saved by what we do with, with people. But you see, you can't say, I love the Father and say, I hate my brother. That's what First John says, right? You can't say, I love God. He's so good. But you, get out of here. So the beauty of this is, well, we were just singing it. I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. Look at the front of your bulletin cover. Jesus says, that's my face. Jesus says there are, there are refugees who are him. There are strangers who we could welcome. What an opportunity. You could welcome Moses. You could welcome Jesus or an angel. That's what scripture tells us. This is a great opportunity for us. But it goes on and says, and the king will say to those on the left, verse 41, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Notice that this is not a sin of doing anything. It's a sin of not doing. They just didn't get around to it. 
Then they will reply, Lord, when do we ever see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. That is the test at the gate, according to this scripture. Whether we follow Jesus, whether we love others, loving God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind goes together with loving our neighbor as ourself, right? Um, so, are, but are we turning them away when we welcome refugees? So these are the religious de demographics of refugees resettled to the U.S. Almost half are Christian, about a third Muslim, some Buddhists and Hindus. So most who come here as refugees are Christians. Way most who come here illegally are Christians of some kind of Christian. Um, so, but the religious demographics, so what, what about, uh, so persecuted Christians in the U.S. refugee program, 2016, there were 42,000 Christian refugees from all countries. So far in 2018, there's 7,600. So that's a 64% decline in persecuted Christians that were welcoming. Syrian Christians, there were 121, now six, that's 90%. Iraqi Christians, so ISIS was doing all that stuff. We were all concerned about that. We welcomed 2,000 this year, 14. So that's 98% less. Iranian Christians, there, you know that only 10% of the refugees from Iran are Muslims? Muslims aren't persecuted in Iran. They can't, they can't pass the test to be, to be refugees. But Christians are. So I think most of the immigrants from Iran are, are Christians. A bunch of them are stuck in Europe now because they're in between. Um, and they might get sent back because there's two this year. 99.8%. Burmese Christians like the Korean who are here with us. We're 7,000. It's only 1,000 now. So that's 70%. All of the most persecuted, higher extreme persecution according to Open Doors, 16,000 came in in 2016. We were able to welcome those Christians. This year, not even 2,000. So 76%. So... Um, now, we do a great job of welcoming when they, when they get here. We, I think we are one of the leaders in the Twin Cities in welcoming people who get here. But they got to get here. Or we got to help them there. Or we got we to gotta figure out how to make that happen. So, um, and then, okay, so not everybody's a Christian. By welcoming those who are not yet believers, we have an opportunity to give an answer to everyone who asks for the hope within us and to make disciples of all nations. Some of you are involved with Somali adult literacy training and have been giving yourselves to teach English to Somalis. And uh, we, we have an opportunity. Now, Somalia is one of the most unreached places and the most difficult places to reach. I don't personally don't want to go to Somalia. I don't even want my kids to go to Somalia, really. But they live right here. You can walk there. And you won't get hurt. There's no war going on. Um, we have that opportunity. There are 200,000 Muslims in Minnesota now. Hallelujah. That means we get to be with them, welcome them, because relationships matter. I talked to my daughter um, Hannah, who's going to be teaching next week in the Bible school in Mwanza, where she grew up, um, so you can pray for her. But she went to her 
Muslim classmate's wedding, um, and a long story there, but, but she got to have all this discussion about, so why do you do that? What about this? And, and how come? And they're like, oh, yeah, well, this is this way and that way, and, and, uh, and well, how come you do it? And so she got to explain all this stuff about why we do marriage the way we do in Christianity and how we have the incarnation, why Jesus came, and all this kind of stuff, because they're just having a discussion about how the marriage goes. Because they're friends. They grew up together. Um, so we have opportunity to do that. Um, unfortunately, among people of non-Christian religious traditions in North America, most of them refugees or other immigrants, 60% say they do not personally know a Christian. Whoa. 60%. Just 35% of white evangelicals in the U.S. say they personally know a Muslim or even fewer know a Hindu or a Buddhist, so... We'll give a little bit of forgiveness to people in Cloquet. Guys, you know, it's a little harder for them to get to know those people. Um, although they have a lot of ideas about those people. Um, but we don't really have an excuse in St. Paul and Twin Cities, do we? Um, we have a lot of opportunities. Hallelujah. Melanie, would you come up here for a minute and uh, tell us a little about what, what you've been doing? Uh, next slide. Something is missionally malignant, cancer, when we're willing to make great sacrifices to travel the world to reach a people group, but we're not willing to walk across the street. Um, so we support Sam and Josie and Katie Iacarella in Southeast Asia, and we have taught those kids, you need to do this. And uh, Melanie, tell us what you've been up to. Let me give you another mic. Hello, everyone. Um, so I have just returned a month ago from working in Syria. Um, I was with a missions project that is giving medical aid to people who were um, in besieged towns or towns that were being, uh, have now surrendered but were being um, attacked uh, in the war. So um, the populations were 100% Muslim. Um, there were families that we, our teams were able to meet who had never met someone who is not Syrian or Muslim or, you know, I had a team full of people from all over the world. So um, it was an incredible opportunity to uh, be uh, salt and light in this region and in a time of um, intense need uh, for the local people. A number of those people actually now uh, from the towns that I've been in are in Turkey or on their way to try to become refugees elsewhere because of their political um, affiliations. They're no longer safe um, now that their cities have changed hands. So, so Melanie's... Sorry. <laughs> I gave her my mic, I know. Yes. Um, so Melanie's a member of our church but she has been in Geneva and now there, so you haven't seen a lot of her. Um, and uh, so did you get a visa for Syria? No visa. Um, no. <laughs> no. How did you get there? Um, the Israeli defense uh, forces opened the Israeli border and let us into the other country. So... So you snuck in on a donkey, that's what I heard. Yes, down I Mount rode Herman. down Mount Hermon on a mule and rode up it when I was evacuated. Okay, that's pretty sneaky. Yeah. It's a lot of effort, logistics. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of logistics and effort, yes, um, to get smuggled into Syria. Yes. <laughs> For good purpose. 
what purpose? Why would you do that? No, first of all, was it easy being in Syria in a war zone? Um, the grace of the Lord is sufficient. So okay. I would say it was, uh, no, challenging, definitely challenging. Um, bombs were falling. Uh, we, I was working primarily with trauma patients. So um, these are people who, if we weren't there, would die. Um, so no, it's not easy, but what more worthy cause is, is how I feel about it. These are people who... Um, Man, some of them died, and we were the last people to pray over them and touch them and wash them. Um, so, it, it yeah, I can only say Jesus is worthy of that. I believe that's what he himself would do. Um, and he's the one who opens up the door through Israel, of all people, to for a Christian organization, to work with Muslims. It's, it's the hand of the Lord, um, and... Yeah, I mean, I guess I went because of obedience, but um, it was incredible. So. Okay, and your job specifically was? I was a translator. Um, so Spanish, the doctors were Latin American, um, well, a few of them, and I speak Arabic as well. So did a lot of translation. Okay, mm -hmm. thanks. So you can pray for Melanie. She's got... Uh, She's figuring out next steps now. And, um, but I want you to think about this. She's willing to learn Arabic and Spanish and let God take her into a war zone in Syria. And we support that because we think it's worth it. It's a little scary sending her over there, you know? Um, and uh, I asked her some hard questions about the mission. And this is okay, you know, what's going on? And as a mission board, we were trying to figure out some of that. Because we want her to be safe. We do. Um, but so this girl on the front here is a Syrian refugee. Um, more than half of refugees are kids. Um, a lot of them who come here are, are women and children. And so what, um, what are we afraid of? Well, we're afraid of losing our comfort. We're afraid of losing some advantage. There's lots of things to be afraid of. You know what? Hospitality is not really comfortable necessarily. Pastor Justin, you had a few people at your house this week? I should ask your wife because she was the one feeding them. You had a few people at your house this week? Yes. Um, and, you know, I had the minister Dolly with me and you know I had other plans other things I could have done besides hosting him and I had other things to get done and it was a little inconvenient um, to have a stranger but he was also it was also a privilege um, and and those of you who welcomed people to your home for the African Leadership Conference those of you who cooked for them and welcomed them thank you you're amazing um, Warren Hagstrom isn't here today but he you know he had a librarian pastor with him for some some weeks, and then he had others with him for this conference. Um, you guys are really amazing at hospitality, but hospitality is one of our core values here, right? We say we're about hospitality. Uh, I'm going to get to this later, but there's two verse, verses in Scripture where it says practice hospitality, and the word is actually philoxenia, which means philo is like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's brotherly love. So love someone like a brother or sister, Xenia is stranger or foreigner. Sometimes it was even used for enemy. Um, so love strangers is what it means. Have them in your home. 
Um, the, you know what, the other word that we use with xenia often is xenophobia, fear of strangers and foreigners. So um, some things we can do. I want us to get practical. Um, Christian response to refugees and immigration. Prayer, listening, empowering churches abroad, advocacy, serving locally, and evangelism. Now, these are all things we do. Um, but I want us to talk a little bit more about them. Um, so these are first verses you know. Pray without ceasing. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Tell, we pray that God would send people to Syria. Pray that God would send people to Skyline Towers. Pray that God would send people where they are needed. Um, First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We're supposed to pray for our leaders, government officials, and others, so that, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives as, as believers around the world. Pray for our leaders and other leaders, that we can live that, that, that wars can be solved and things can be better. Um, a Christian response to refugees, listening to scripture and to immigrant stories. We can make this available. I don't know if we want to send it out in an email or uh, have it on the website, but we can. I took out some things from this slide thing too, but you can l- click on those links when you get there. To scripture and talk to the immigrants here and get their stories. Um, I asked Anna if she wanted to share her story, but she said uh, she didn't. She let me share it. But you know Anna's story. She spent four months in jail because she was suspected uh, uh, just as an immigrant. She went in to say, well, you know, here, I want to just renew my status. And they said, "Uh uh-oh, nope, straight to jail. And it took four months to straighten it out. Um, Empowering churches abroad. Come alongside churches around the world to address the root causes that compel migration. Poverty, persecution, war, natural environmental disasters. You know what? This is the cool thing about this church. We have all of that. I remember my kids being at McAllister and everybody's all pumped up about how they want to change, it, change the world, do different things, and, and they realized, but they don't have the network we do. They don't know Christians in places, in the refugee camps, doing this stuff that we can support, that we can help with orphans. One of the, one of the, uh, one of the people who came here from Congo is uh, running an orphanage for, for babies in Congo. Talk to Pastor Justin if you want to support him in that. So there's things we can do because we have what an amazing network the church is. A Christian response, advocacy. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. You know what? Those 20 plus million refugees don't get to vote anywhere. And uh, some of us do. And some of us can tell people we're going to vote for them. Um, this, is, this is an area we've done less of because we're a little bit squeamish about politics. Um, and I, when you guys hired me, people asked me about politics, and some of you were like, I thought we were going to talk about politics. I didn't promise that, remember? I said, we're going to talk about what the Bible says, and if the politicians are already talking about it, that's their problem. And uh, so we, we're talking about this because it's in the Bible. And I'm not talking about partisan stuff. So Tuesday, this Tuesday, meet some strangers. It's National Night Out. You know what that means? You get to find 
Find some people on your block. You get to meet the people who live across from you or, or down the street, and you get to meet some strangers. So go to it or sponsor it. I'm still trying to figure out my new neighborhood. I just got there. I might have to sponsor one myself. I think I'm, this afternoon I might have to just uh, print up a flyer and put it in the people's doors around my house and say, hey, come over and let's have some ice cream. Oh, Seeds is at the Lutheran, Jehovah Lutheran Church. You're packing for National Night Out. Partnering with them. Okay, great. Sorry. Okay. Um, so he puts up with my accent in Swahili, actually. So um, the following Tuesday is the primary election. And um, I, I mention this now because I don't care what party you're in. Whatever party you're in, vote biblically. Push for biblical things. Not only immigration, we also think we should advocate for laws about pro-life. We also think we should advocate for laws about all kinds of other stuff, right? And uh, don't we? Don't we Don't we think that some laws are unjust and we want to change them? And we want things to be... Uh, so this is one of those laws that we can advocate for. And the thing is, if we're not advocating for biblical things... Other people are advocating for other things. If you're not advocating for prison reform, then the people who have private prisons are doing all the advocating to guarantee that there's 35,000 beds paid for for refugees that the government has to pay for whether there's refugees in them or not. So, um, okay. So here are some of the current policy issues. I think you guys know this. I, I actually have not been watching the news all that much because I can only handle so much. Um, but decline of the U.S. refugee resettlement program, we just saw that. Way down from what it was. Termination of DACA or the Dreamer stuff is on the table. Um, that's, that's kids who have been here and now are adults and came here not of their own volition, but um, that's about to go away. Family separation, zero tolerance at the U.S.-Mexico border. And you know what? A bunch of evangelicals and pastors and other people said, hey, we don't want, we don't want families separated. And it changed because people said something. Um, restricted in interpretation of asylum statutes. When we were with Pastor Mike, it's like, well, we don't really know. You know, if you're really um, much narrower interpretation of what classifies as asylum. Ending temporary protection status for various countries. Broadening of priorities for deportation. Proposal to cut legal immigration options for family reunification. And eliminating the diversity visa lottery. Those are all things on the table. So... It used to be we were trying to get away for people to become legal who've been here for a long time. That's not even, uh, that's not even hoped for now, just uh, not going backwards. So, um, and again, I am not trying to be on one side or the other. In, in fact, in the primary, we just, we get to pick somebody from our party who matches our values. And I, I'm mentioning this one value. We have lots of values that we've talked about other times, um, like pro-life, for example, um, we don't like bakers being thrown in prison for not doing cakes. Uh, we, we want things to be, different kinds of things to be changed. So um, let's go on. I'm getting uncomfortable here, so. Um. <laughs> but do write me an email or sit down with me and let's talk about this, all right? You, I know you have different opinions and I don't know at all. Um, but let's, uh, let's, ha let's have a discussion about it. And, and talk, not just me, I don't have to get it all, 
talk to the other person who's uh, near you that might have a different opinion. So this is Evangelical Immigration Roundtable. A group of evangelical leaders call for a bipartisan solution on immigration that is in the middle of, respects the God-given dignity of every person, protects the unity of the immediate family, respects the rule of law. We want people to follow the law. Um, guarantees secure national borders, ensures fairness to taxpayers, and establishes a path toward legal status and or citizenship for those who qualify and who wish to become permanent residents. So um, one of the ways to deal with illegal immigration is to change laws so people can find a way to pay a fine, do something, have a path so they can become legal. Um, and uh, we also want to enforce. So less, we want less illegal immigration, for sure. Um, and uh, and that's, a, that's a whole group, and you can, you can check that out. Um, so some practical ways you can advocate. Um, you can check that immigration table thing. You can write your member of Congress, write something in the paper, encourage other people to act. Um, you can serve locally with seeds, with people around here, people who are coming in, with Arrive Ministries. There's lots of opportunities in this congregation and outside to serve. Um, salt. Um, and various ways you can serve. Evangelism. We already talked about this. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Hannah had a great opportunity to sit with her, her uh, friends she grew up with and talk about gentleness and respect, compare, compare things, and tell, tell about how she, she sees things. We have all kinds of opportunities. You know, it took 40 years for Jethro to get saved. Or more. There's a lot of discussions around the dinner table building trust. Before Jethro came and said, wow, that's amazing. Yahweh is the only God. It could take a long time in some relationships for people to change. But people are changing. There's a lot of refugees from Syria who are getting converted in places like Jordan and other places from, from well, and also Lebanon that I've, that I've heard about. And... Um, some of those countries have a quarter of their population now, Syrian refugees. Um, and, but some Christians are there helping and get, having an opportunity. So um, we get opportunities for those if we build trust with people. Um, so phylozenia, we're commanded to practice hospitality. I men mentioned this, which literally means to practice loving strangers. And when we do so... We may be welcoming angels unaware. Roman 12 says, always be eager to practice hospitality, which means to love those who are strangers. Hebrews 13 says, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. So God encourages us to show hospitality, to welcome strangers. Yeah, strangers. We don't know. Into our homes. And I think that uh, we can call home various ways. Um, he had a good story about this. The peace person who presented told a great story about how he welcomed these, these people from East Africa. And then they the, were rejoiced with them when the husband came. And then they asked, how come you don't have a, 
a child and he said, well, we've been trying and we haven't. And then, uh, then he came and said, you know, I think you're going to have a, a baby this year. And he said, oh, great. Um, and then when they came and announced that they were actually pregnant a few months later, they fell on the ground and, and rejoiced and, and whatever. And it turned out they had been fasting every Thursday for them to have a child. Um, he was like, whoa. Some people learn some things in some hard things that we need to benefit from. I tell you what, we need the kind of faith that some other people have. We need to have relationships with them and learn from them and the experiences they've been through because they have a lot to bring to us. Um, strangers become citizens, Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that we were the strangers. We're Jethro, or we're Moses, maybe. We're, we're the outsiders. He says, in those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. How many of you are Israelites? Jews, even? We had a couple of, a couple of people. The rest of us are strangers. You were excluded from citizenship, and you did not know the covenant promises God has made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, from Yahweh, from our Father, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace, shalom, to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. There's always hostility between different people, peoples who are different from each other. But Christ has broken down that wall. That is what brings us together. We have one blood. And it's not the blood of your grandparents, even the blood of Noah. It's true, we all have the blood of Noah. But we're also united by the blood of Jesus that breaks down the walls of hostility between people. And um, so we're coming to the table along with Jethro. Can I have the deacons, elders come up? We are... Um, Coming to this table, like Jethro did, as a stranger, but recognizing that Yahweh is the only God over all gods, over all peoples, and we all are to submit to him, and we can all call him Father. Because while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. So the sacrifice that Jethro made doesn't need to be made again. The sacrifice was Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. So you can come to this table. You can bring your shame, your anger, your animosity, um, your wounds, your hurts from someone or some people. You can bring them here to the one who suffered you know, Jesus came as a stranger, didn't he? He came as a stranger. He said, came to those who were his own, and they did not welcome him. He came from heaven to earth as a stranger. Some people welcomed him. Some people didn't. Some people 
killed him. Um, so this is the blood of a condemned man, a condemned criminal. If, you, if you're coming with your shame, remember Adam and Eve hiding in the garden trying to cover up their nakedness? What is it that you want to cover up today? Remember Jesus, naked, bloody, accused, dying on the cross, took your shame. He made us one family with his blood. And uh, Peg, would you are you to translate? Would you uh, break the bread with me?